Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. church family. Excited to get to be here with you this morning. My name is Corey. I get to be your uh, teaching pastor as we uh, are just two weeks out next to last week in our series that we're in before Advent starts. And uh, before we get in that, let me just say uh, last week I got to preach on tongues and prophecy. Uh, and I didn't hit on the text about women not speaking in church. And that wasn't, I had no like reasoning behind that. It seemed like it fit what we were talking about with tongues and prophecy specifically. Uh, and it was really cool because I think 10 different women reached out and like, hey, we would just like to heard what you had to say about that. And so one, I want to celebrate like one, our ladies in the church that they feel like comfortable enough to be able to come forward and say, hey, we know that we're allowed to do this, but we'd like to know like your position as our teaching pastor on that. I think that's awesome that your confidence is in that and that you don't shy away from things like that. And I was I know you know this, it was not intentional. Uh, so what I did is I wrote up a, a bit of a position paper, it's not super long, three and a half pages or so, 1,800 words, nothing crazy. Uh, and I submitted that to, some of you are like, I haven't written that since college, you know, I get it. I love to write, it wasn't that hard. And so I wrote up kind of what I would have said were I to preach that text. And so it kind of reads, hopefully, like you would, uh, like we were sitting down on the table across from one another and I was talking to you. Uh, and so I submitted that then to your missional community leaders uh, last week. And so hopefully then that can get dispersed throughout the body in that way. Uh, also then, if you're not in a missional community, we talk a lot about that. If you're not yet plugged in, uh, just simply email me. Email us at info at weareheights.org. If you can put that online for people that are online, info at weareheights.org. Or just go on Facebook and hit us with a Facebook message and someone from staff will just simply share a PDF with you. Uh, again, I know you know that wasn't malicious. I know at this point I've proven over almost 10 years, I don't mind tackling all that stuff. I just genuinely didn't think that it fit in light of tongues and uh, prophecy. But I'm super thankful uh, for the ladies that just came forward and they weren't intimidated at all. They were like, hey, could you tell us about that. So thank you for your voice uh, as it pertains even specifically to that text. Sound good? Same page? All right, right on. And so we're almost done with the series called Corinth uh, Q&A, and we're looking today at the question of uh, why does the resurrection matter, or does the resurrection matter? And so depending on like where you're at, if you're a Christian, you're like, yeah, the resurrection matters, but do you know why? Uh, maybe you're in the room and you're a skeptic, or you're not yet a Christian, right? You're just kind of here, you're just kind of testing the waters a little bit, and you're like, well, what is this thing uh, called a resurrection? Well, if you read 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul here kind of bangs out this really awesome introduction to the resurrection even uses like historical articles and the reality that there was eyewitnesses of that. And so my, my goal today isn't to convince you of the resurrection, but rather to present the question to you, why does the resurrection matter? We're currently in a series called Corinth Q&A. We're looking at 16 different questions. And so this is one of our uh, questions. And so I want to kind of start uh, like this, which is <laughs> so crazy to think about. Thanksgiving's on Thursday. That's, is anybody else like totally geeked out? about that, like freaked out, I mean, about that. Like, I feel like yesterday it was warm and I was in the pool and now I'm wearing corduroy, you know? And I was like, what has happened to our time frame? Well, when you think about Thanksgiving or whenever I think about Thanksgiving anyway, uh, I immediately started thinking about smells, which sounds weird when I say it in front of all of you, but it's true. Does anybody have like a smell for Thanksgiving that they can't wait to smell for Thursday? Yeah, somebody just shout them out to me. I want to hear some. Biscuits? Okay. Stuff. Someone said stuffing earlier. Good. 
the farm? Oh, your parents' farm? That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's some things on a farm you don't want to smell on Thanksgiving. So, yeah, me too. I love, man, I love pumpkin pie, pecan. I just love pies. The smell of pie um, on Thanksgiving is what gets me. That's what my grandma used to always make. And when you think about, like, Thanksgiving, it does typically begin with a smell. You know, like, kind of when you open the door to whoever's hosting, is, you know, if you're going to someone's house, you kind of get that waft of smell. And that's kind of the, the onset of what's to come. And then as you're in there even preparing and things, you don't immediately jump to eating, right? If you're, if you're preparing and cooking, you're looking at all of the different things. If you're uh, not cooking, you're just a glutton, then you have like a foam plate that's supposed to have three specific sessions and you got like everything just kind of swirled in there, mixing it all together. You begin to see, you smell it, you see it. Oh, and then you get to eat, you get to eat, eat. That's the one time where like, Father, forgive me for I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm gonna glutton, I'm gonna be all over this thing. You eat. And then if you're like me, then you take a nap, especially if you're not hosting. And if you are hosting, you're just bitter because you want to take a nap. And so uh, the reality of what I'm pointing out here, though, is that there is a, a, a bit of a cascade, right? A, a metamorphosis, if I may. It's gonna, there's some seasons that come in that that move from smell to sight to taste. Well, that's the purpose of the resurrection, right? Because you don't just jump to Jesus in the resurrection. I mean, you have all of the scriptures that are pointing to the reality of what is to come, right? The scriptures are saying, this is what's coming. And it doesn't, still doesn't jump to resurrection. It's like Jesus has to come and live the perfect life. And he has to die the most humiliating death. And then he gets to resurrect to new life. And with each one of those episodes, we're moving from smell to sight to taste. And so each one of those episodes, if I may, is kind of a first fruits. It's, a, it's showing you what is to come so that it creates in you then this longing to be able to actually touch and taste and see a resurrected Jesus Christ. And so the big idea for this morning is the resurrection reveals what's to come. The resurrection reveals what's to come. I have three points that I uh, hopefully can push this out for you with, and it's the first fruits of equality, the first fruits of victory, and then the first fruits of hope. First fruits of equality will be uh, first, I'm going to lay out a framework for you, first fruits of victory. Uh, we're going to actually set and see what we're redeemed from in the resurrection because of the resurrection, and then how that drives hope uh, down deep into our souls. And so the resurrection reveals what's to come, first fruits of equality is what's first. If you're ready, say I'm ready. All right, cool. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 20 through 23 first is what we're going to hit. It says, uh, Paul says now, but in fact, because he's laid out now 19 verses saying there was eyewitnesses, there were this, if this hasn't happened, we are, our faith is futile, we're the most to be pitied, we should just all go drink and party if this has not taken place. Then he gets to verse 20, but he's like, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The what? The first Fruits. Somebody say first fruits. First fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I'll explain it in a moment. Verse 21. For as by a man, Adam, came death, by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22. Here it is again. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ must go first. Christ the, what does it say? First fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So he must get resurrected first, and then we follow suit. We fall in behind him. And so Paul here, the Apostle Paul, has written this letter to the church in Corinth, and he's laying out for them an, an illustration that would make sense to them. And so in their culture, it's what's called an agrarian culture. They're dependent upon 
agriculture, their livelihood, their wealth, their well-being, their ability to be able to survive during that time is dependent upon agriculture. And so as that pertains to first fruits, they were looking forward to, they were longing for, they were literally putting their hopes in the first fruits. And so for their culture, they're looking forward to the first crop, right? The first head of corn, the first apple to drop from the tree. Like they're looking forward to those first fruits because their livelihood was dependent upon a good first fruit. And so whenever the first fruit would bud, whatever it is in their harvest or their crop, they would literally take that first fruit and they would examine that first fruit. They would smell that first fruit. They would look at that first fruit and then they would take a bite of it. And if it was luscious and good and delicious and healthy and juicy, then they're like, oh, sweet. This is what's to come. This is the first fruit of the harvest that is to come. You still tracking with me? And at the same time then, when they look at that first fruit and they take that, they're looking at it, they're seeing it, they're checking it out, they're observing it, uh, surveying it, they take a bite of it. If it's foul, if it's rotten, if it's disgusting, then they know what? They know that the first fruit has revealed the harvest probably will not be plentiful. It probably will not be a healthy or a good crop. So all of their um, effort, their whole initiative, all of their livelihood is kind of built around what's this first bite? going to taste like what is going to follow. So the Apostle Paul then is laying out for us uh, kind of this dichotomy or this tension here in the text. And he's saying, hey, there are, there are two first fruits, right? There, there's only two. There's either, you're either born into and under the first fruits of Adam. You're, either, you're born into and under the death of Adam, the curse of Adam that comes out of Genesis 3. He is your first fruits. He is your head. You will follow him or you are reborn, regenerate, made new in and through the work and the personhood of Jesus Christ. He's your first fruits from the dead, and you will continue to follow suit and follow after him in life and eternity. You still tracking with me? I'm talking too fast for you. And so Paul is calling us then to look back to the creation story. Genesis 1 and 2, everything was perfect. They only had a good crop. They only had perfect first fruits. They were allowed to eat of all of it except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve, they rebel against the living God. And Genesis 3, then, and they take and they eat of the only forbidden fruit that they're not allowed to eat of. And in so doing, then the curse of sin enters into the story of God and enters into the cosmos and into creation. It's not just that like you're a sinner and you can die and go to hell. That's part of the story. But the reality is everyone has tasted the first fruits of Adam as sin has entered into the story. The curse of Adam and Eve has entered into the story. We are born theologically, big theological word for you, it's called total depravity. We are born into and under the curse of Adam and Eve. And people want to argue that. They say, no, 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 we're born with a choice. No, you're not. Otherwise, your two-year-old would not go, that's mine. You're out here teaching your kids to say, no, that's mine, mine, mine. No, they're little demonic monsters because they are born into and under the curse of Adam. They're born into death. Anybody else have some kids in the house, right? Thanksgiving is going to be a nightmare for us, right? It's going to be crazy. They're going to get Oreo balls, and they're going to go psycho. That's what's going to happen. And so I share all that because I want to be clear, right? Words matter. Big idea from last week. Verse 21 again. Now with that context, that's a framework for us to understand the text. Verse 21 again says this, for as by a man came death. Now we're talking about Adam, right? But a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. First fruits, verse 22. For as in Adam, all die. Okay, it's not a matter of opinion. It's the reality of the situation. So also in Christ shall all be made alive, those who profess faith in Christ. Verse 23. But each of them in his own order. Jesus must go first. Christ, the first fruits. Then at his coming, 
We are the harvest, church family. We follow behind him. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Are we together on that? Okay, good. That's the framework for what's happened. Now, that's important to understand, okay? Because the resurrection of Jesus, to make the first point, is the great equalizer. It's the first fruits of equality. And what I mean by that then, if that's true, you're either born into Adam or you're born into Christ then, what that means is there is no room for pride in this house. There's no room for arrogance in here. There is no room for us to look down our nose depending on someone's race, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status. It simply is not a part of the equation anymore. And so what the point that Paul is making is that your intelligence doesn't matter. Your knowledge doesn't matter. Your faithfulness doesn't matter. Your ability to serve the church doesn't matter. Your ability to give to a year-end offering does not make you any more close or further away from Jesus Christ. You are either born into Adam or you've professed faith in the finished work of Jesus and you were reborn into Christ as your first fruits. And so we know this because contextually speaking, looking at Corinth and what the Apostle Paul has said so far, last week Corinth came and said, what, we have a great deal of wisdom and knowledge. And Paul said, so what? So does the culture. But we have really great gifts. We've come here to make it. We've come here to achieve. We're gonna take. We're gonna earn our way. And Paul said, who cares? So is the rest of culture. Oh, but look at our faithfulness. He says, who cares? Everyone professes faith in something. But look at our sacrifice, Paul. He says, who cares? Everyone sacrifices something, right? Everyone went to Corinth to make it, to take, to aspire, to achieve. They didn't show up in Corinth, right, to try to have their families and have the perfect house with two and a half kids and a labradoodle. They showed up to take what was theirs. And Paul says, you look no different than the culture, okay? So what that means then is that, again, we're either born into Adam, which all are born into Adam, and then reborn into Christ Jesus. And when you understand that, that levels the playing ground, the playing field. We're all evenly, equally, either in Adam or in Christ, which means then the only difference between a Christian and someone who's not a Christian is that we believe Jesus took the death that we deserve. How can that promote pride in you? How can that promote arrogance in you? How could that ever move you to look down your nose at someone who's a little bit different than you are? The resurrection is, in fact, the great equalizer for us. The first fruits, point number two. Somebody say number two. First fruits of, first fruits of victory, okay? First fruits of, of victory. In verse 24, then, this is what comes. This is like, I don't know, like maybe the most wordy scripture in the whole New Testament, Okay? I said earlier, I just, I'm just thankful Paul used some commas because he usually doesn't even do that for us. If you read your Bible, then you'll get that humor. Uh, if you don't read your Bible, yeah, we know. So, <laughs> verse 24. It says, then comes the end. Okay, then comes the end. It's the apocalyptic language here. He's gonna mention this subjection seven times, which is appropriate within apocalyptic language. And so, verse 24 again. Uh, then comes the end. Uh, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, uh, he, oh, sorry, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Hallelujah. Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in and all. Okay? Yeah, that's the Apostle Paul. 
Thank you so much, Paul. Very wordy way of saying, hey, we win this mother, turns out. We win. I was looking at the book, and the last page is here, and I was like, oh, dang, we win. Who knew? And so that's all he had to say. But what, he's, what he is painting this picture of is like, you have God the Father, okay, there's a, a subordination here. You have God the Father, you have God the Son, and you have God the Spirit, right? That's three and one, three who's, one what, Trinitarian view of God. The Father has sent the Son, and the Son has sent the Spirit. There is a level of submission that happens there where they are under subjection to one another. And so what he's saying is that the Father has sent the Son, and the Son will rule and reign and put all things under subjection to him to the glory of the Father. He's going to do that until his dad is satisfied, which means he's going to do that forever, forevermore. He's never going to stop putting evil under subjection to him in the end, in the end times. Evil will never come back. There will only be holiness and only be glory and only be perfection forevermore to the glory of the Father, but at the work of the Son. You guys with me on that? Oh, that's some good Trinitarian theology right there. Come on. And so... What's great about that is Paul's using in this imagery, again, kind of some word art for us, different culture, well, kind of different, I'll talk a little bit about it, where he's using this imagery of subjection. And so back in the day, back in the old days, you know, um, there was a king, king would send out the men to go to battle. Let's say this king was victorious and this king would win. If they could keep the other king alive, that was a good day for them. So they would bring the king that had been defeated over to the king that has won, and the king would stand there in kind of his left hand. He would have their banner for their family or for their tribe, for their city, their community. They'd have that banner in his hand. And then he would literally put his foot on the chest of the king that had been defeated. Now, if you've seen some movies, maybe you've seen 300 or something like that. Then the other men, right, they would go out, even though they had won, and this king was defeated. He's under subjection. His foot is, the winner's foot is on top of his chest, well, then what would happen then is the other men would go out, and maybe you've seen this part in the movie, and they take their spear, and they're just stabbing folks on the battleground. Boom, put them to death, put them to death, put them to death over and over again. Why are they doing that? Because they need total subjection. They need total victory. They want to see total annihilation. And so the victor king would literally put the enemy under subjection and under him, right? He would place that defeated king underneath his feet. There had to be total and complete annihilation and victory. And so you're seeing, okay, this wartime mentality right now if you look at the news, right? And so if you look at Israel and Hamas, that is a wartime mentality. Hamas is not just misunderstood as some people want us to believe. It is a terrorist organization that is out to murder and kill people. Now, I'm not saying there's not good Palestinians and people in Israel that mean well or people that don't. I'm not, don't let your political agenda affect the illustration right now. What I am saying is that in their wartime mentality, there has to be a complete and total annihilation of the force because what will happen in light of a terrorist cell and terrorist organization, if they are not completely annihilated, is they view that as a victory. The bigger force could not beat us, and so now we're going to rally the troops, and we're going to come back, and we're going to attack again. Even though they get beat, they still view it as a win because they get to re-rally people and come back in and attack again. Are you guys tracking with that? And so that's the mindset there is, no, we can't do a ceasefire. There has to be total annihilation of what is happening. It is a wartime mentality. And so it is here in the, in the text, right? 
we do not, verse Ephesians 6, 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. It is a, there are marching orders here for the complete and total annihilation of sin. Why? Because it will creep back in. And you know this to be true. Because whenever you flirt with sin, you flirt with death, you flirt with the stench of sin as your pastor led you through earlier in your confession, what happens? It starts to grow, starts to come back, starts to get bigger, right? It moves from just kind of seeing it over there, smelling it over there, and now you're seeing it over there, and now what are you doing? Well, now we're tasting it together. That's the way that sin works. And so he says we are called to stand firm. There has to be a total and annihilation. Well, I would ask then, pastor, what, um, what is being brought under subjection? We talk about sin, talk about death, the curse of Adam and Eve, throw out some $100 word, total depravity. What does that actually mean? Well, I'm glad we're on the same page, and, we, and you asked. That's a good question. Uh, there are four relationships that are broken uh, in Genesis 3. Okay, if you don't know your Bible, page 1 and 2, everything is perfect. It's good. Humanity comes in. It's very good because now God has someone to represent him. Adam was meant to be the head Adam was meant to be the first fruits of creation, to maintain dominion, to cultivate the land, to be fruitful and multiply. That was his role. That was his job, Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, instead of submitting to God the Father and worshiping creator, they turn to creation. And they begin to worship themselves, and they take and they eat of the apple, right? One bad apple can spoil the bunch. Well, in this case, uh, one very appealing apple uh, led to sin and death for everything that we know, <laughs> for every relationship that we could ever understand or imagine. That's what's brought under subjection. So by this slide, this is what I mean. There are four relationships that we can clearly see there. I'll hit you with them, and then I'll explain them uh, at length. Uh, four relationships is humanity versus humanity, right? All Adam and Eve knew in Genesis 1 and 2 was the beauty of simply being married to one another. There was no fighting. There was no strife. Some of you would be so bored, right? You're like, what are we going to talk about? What we ain't fighting, what are we talking about? They didn't have a framework for that. It was only perfect, only maintaining dominion, only cultivating, only being fruitful and multiplying, right? With a reckless abandonment. That's what they were called to do. What a God we have. Uh, humanity and self, they only had a, a good self-image. The Imago Dei, they were made in the image of God. There was a, they were a perfect representation of God the Father to the rest of creation. There was no broken relationship between humanity and God. There was only a perfect atmosphere and environment of worship and presence. That's all they knew. Perfect, the Bible says perfect shalom. There was peace. There was balance. It was literally just an environment of worship is what they had. And then there was perfect relationship between humanity and uh, creation. There was no such thing as maybe you felt this, labor pains. There was no sweating by the work of your hands, like sweating by the, by the sweat of your brow, you would labor for your, by your hands. There was only like perfect humanity relationship there. There was no death, was no sin. It was completely and utterly perfect. And so what happens whenever Adam and Eve rebel against the Father, these four relationships are shattered. We're going to camp out in them together, okay? Humanity versus humanity. Let's just start there. Have you ever heard of anything called death? Murder, genocide, uh, people using the name of Jesus to get their own agenda, people using the name of Jesus to abuse other men and other women. I sat with someone this week who people used the name of Jesus to hurt him. That's the way that he was 
heard. People using the name of Jesus to take advantage of people. People using politics to corrupt and take over. You ever seen a corrupt politician? Uh, pride and prejudice, folks who push inequality against race and uh, sexes and in, within the workplace, those who manipulate, those who lie, those who only care about themselves, those who will, as I in, has, have encountered this last month, those who will encourage others to remain in sin so that sinful person will keep dependent upon them. That's some evil like I ain't seen in the last couple months. Have you heard of the abusive, sexually abusive, physically abusive, Emotionally abusive, perhaps you've been a victim of these. <laughs> what about something less that feels less extreme but equally as sinful? The white lie. How do you like that turkey? You're like, it's dry. It's great, you know? It tastes great. How's the cobbler? I'm, you know, like pulling stuff out of your mouth. Just rocks in this cobbler? And so, the white lie. Ooh, the Christian F word. I'm fine. When your insides feel like they're being ripped out of you. Uh, have you ever argued with your spouse? Negative. Hey, can you not stop arguing with your spouse? You have kids that are frustrating. Do you, uh, oh, are there certain people that you do not want to see on Thanksgiving? Let's be real with each other. That's humanity versus humanity. That will be brought under subjection. Humanity versus self here. Okay, so we have a, for the first time after Adam and Eve rebel against God the Father, they're now, um, they're in hiding. They feel shame. They're fearful of God the Father. Where they once walked in his very presence, now they're hiding in shame and embarrassed of what has happened. Anybody have anxiety in the room? Anybody feel anxiety when you think I want you to raise your hand just then? Right? When, when you wake up at, at night, anybody like me, you have some nights where you wake up and you just can't control your thoughts. You wake up and boom, off to the races. Well, now we're here for two hours, right? I might as well do some work. I'm already up. What about, you don't have to answer this, you know, but like what about depression? You can't eat. You can't sleep. You're completely surrounded by people right now, yet you feel totally alone and isolated in this room. That's the effects of the fall. Perhaps you have distorted body image, and no matter what you do, no matter the diet, no matter uh, how often you go to the gym or what workout program you're using or what sort of advice your coach gives you, you're just never pleased. You're just never satisfied, just constantly always kind of ridden with a little bit of doubt and distorted body image. You look in the mirror, and you don't see what God sees. You see what the enemy wants you to see. What about anger? Anybody have some anger in here? Like, I'm kind of angry with you for pulling my card right now. I get it. Uh, maybe frustration. Do you know anyone that struggles with ego? They just think that they're a little bit more awesome than they actually are. Think about something like suicidal thoughts. Where do you think that comes from? It's the effects of the fall. That's a demonic, oppressive reality from the effects of the fall. Suicidal thoughts come in that. It's, I'm not saying it can't be treated with medicine and things like that. I'm saying this is the evidence of the fall. Are we tracking on that? Okay, we have a, a high view. We understand about mental instability and, and health. So suicidal thoughts can be a part of that. I think that that's probably the climax in many ways of the enemy's authority over us and in our world. What about humanity versus God then, right? All they knew was the cool of the day, the presence, walking hand in hand in the glory of God, to the glory of God forevermore. That's what Adam and Eve experienced, something we will only experience in the kingdom. That was the original part of the story. Have you ever, felt, have you ever doubted God? Well, absolutely we do, right? Have you ever felt alone and disconnected from God? Have you ever felt uh, as if he were just out to get you? He's kind of this mean, authoritarian God who may or may not exist, and if he does exist, he most certainly doesn't have my best interests in mind. Or if he's out there in the clouds kind of navigating and doing his own thing, he most certainly does not consider what sort of suffering he's bestowing upon me. The audacity of this 
God? Do you ever feel like God is absent or God is uncaring? Perhaps you see God through a lens of your own family. And so you were, perhaps you've experienced some of this uh, humanity versus humanity, the abuse that comes from the fall. And so when you think about God the Father, you're like, if he's anything like my father, I want nothing to do with him. If he's anything like my parents, I want nothing to do with him. If he's anything like my coach, for crying out loud, then I want nothing to do with that God. You take your God and you get out of here with him. If you're doubted the Lord, if you're doubted that he is Goodness, his goodness, do you have a skewed version of God because of the story of abuse you have in your own life? These are the things, church family, that get brought under subjection one day. There's a hope in the gospel. Humanity versus creation, last one here. Have you ever wondered why there are tsunamis? Why are there tornadoes? Why are there mudslides? Why is there barren land? Why is the climate act in such a way that there has to be deserts or in such a way that everything is ice. What about cancer, Alzheimer's, scoliosis, warts, pimples, body odor for junior high kids, I wrote down. <laughs> I have one, so. And on and on. Why is, why is creation literally aiming to rip itself in half, rip herself in half? Well, it's because Adam is the first fruits. And, and, what, and what followed then of that first rotten ankle, ankle first rotten apple, is a harvest of death, a harvest of the curse of sin. Everyone in the room has been, who's in the room been affected by something that I just said? Exactly. So is it possible if everyone in here has been affected by evil that there might be perhaps the opposite of evil, which is holiness? Food for thought. Last point, first fruits of hope. First fruits of hope. Why does the resurrection matter? Oh, because it gives us hope. <laughs> it gives us hope in a hopeless world. When we look out and we see the news and we see social media and we think, man, it does not look like it's going well right now. The resurrection gives us hope. So as we look at a, then a resurrected Jesus here in the scriptures, as much as our mind's eye will help us wrap around who this Jesus is here in the text, as we get to know this Jesus and experience this Jesus and read about this Jesus and see this Jesus in other people, what happens then is we move from just smelling and seeing and tasting to actually fully experiencing the benefits of the resurrection. Why does the resurrection matter? What is the major benefit of the resurrection? It gives us hope. Yeah, happy Easter. Yeah, turns out we can celebrate it more than once a year. Amen? There is hope in the gospel. And so whenever you look at a resurrected Jesus Christ, you get to see this resurrected Jesus or kind of think about the stories of this resurrected Jesus. Full glory, perfect body, perfect form, still with the scars in him. So the story of the gospel is still upon his person and on his body. But we know that he's been resurrected in full glory. And as we get to look at him, man, we get to look and say, well, the relationship between God and man, there is hope for us. Because we get to reside with him forevermore. We're going to spend eternity with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the, the God of all hosts, singing among the angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, while their wings are just kicking up dust in the kingdom. That's what we get to do among the saints. What does that mean? That means relationship between man and humanity, or humanity and humanity, man and woman. When we look at a resurrected Jesus, we have hope. Because we know that while there's some people we don't think are going to make it in, turns out, the Lord in his grace and mercy is going to invite them in. We would make a terrible Holy Spirit, yeah? Let's be honest. There's some people who are like, I don't know, bro, bro. I didn't expect to see you here. 
And it turns out you're not that bad in full glory, right? But on earth, whew, you were a lot. There's a reality where humanity and humanity, that broken relationship, the, the harvest of that, the effects of sin, the first fruit of Adam, the way that they've penetrated that, man, we get to be in glory together as brothers and sisters. There is hope. Relationship between man and man is restored. Relationship between man and self as we see a, a full glorified Jesus. Can you just picture with me the complete and total absence of anxiety for a second? Just picture me the absence of depression. Like picture with me like you wake up in the morning and you don't notice the bags under your eyes anymore, right? Like just think about it, like complete and total perfect view of self. You're in full glory, perfectly modeling the resurrected Jesus Christ for all of eternity. I don't know about you, I don't think I'm gonna get bored with that. It's gonna be awesome, right? I'm not gonna like worry about my love handles, you know? I'm just gonna worship Jesus. Anybody else here with me? I'm pumped about that, it's awesome. It's super cool. Relationship between uh, humanity and creation. Creation will be made new. It's not going to be just golden bricks out and castles everywhere. I think we serve a creator God that will continue creating all into eternity by the power of his people. You think about the arts, think about culture. It's going to be an ever-expanding, beautiful reality where we have perfect relationship as humanity with a perfect creature. Do you ever just think about the things you're going to get to see there? Like if everything is recreated for all of time and all of space and all of history, there's going to be things there that are unfathomable for us that we get to see. And we're never going to grow tired or weary of getting to learn about the excellencies of Jesus as the perfect creator. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. The resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits that revealed, and there is a future resurrection that we as a people have been invited into. And in that, it gives us hope. And the only way that that is possible then is not because we like Adam choosing to kind of earn our way into the kingdom, going about doing things ourselves, touching things we shouldn't touch, looking at things we shouldn't look at, and eating things we shouldn't eat, but rather it happens because of the good and finished work of Jesus Christ in our place. And so let me explain the gospel then to you. Uh, Jesus came and lived the perfect life in our place as our substitute. That's something you and I can't do. He didn't do it so we would be licentious. He didn't do it so we would be legalistic. He did it so that we could experience the grace and mercy of the gospel when we fail. They say, oh, you're the only one that can do this. You are, in fact, the better Adam. You're the perfect first fruits. My, that's what it looks like to be a God. That's what Adam was supposed to do, right? As you get to know him in the scriptures and you see his, his people responding to you with just that one thought, Jesus walked out, perfection. You begin to see and taste and smell and experience this Jesus right now. Jesus lived and walked in perfection. Jesus also then goes to the cross, and we know that as Christians, right? Jesus went to the cross and died for my sins. Yes and amen. Let's stand up and take communion. But he does so much more than that. Whenever Jesus goes to the cross, he eats the first fruits of Adam. That's what he does. When it says the wrath of God comes against Jesus, that's what he's doing. He's reversing the curse of sin whenever he goes to the cross. As the better Adam, he eats the first fruits of Adam. And what I mean by that is all of the effects of sin that have ever hit your body or scorched this earth, whenever it says the wrath of God comes against Jesus Christ, it's all of that. It's all of the sin. And not only like the little white lie sin or, or something as vast and terrible as pedophilia. It's all of the ripple effects of that sin that breeds out and begins to hit the men and women of this world across all eternity. When the wrath of God is poured out, what he's doing is he's giving Jesus the first fruits of Adam. It's blasting against him. Why? So that he might die in your place as your substitute. He kills the perfect Adam for you to give you grace, to show you mercy. And then he resurrects him anew. 
Why? To reveal he is, in fact, who he says he is. He's the firstborn, resurrected son of all creation. He's the firstborn from the dead, the scripture says. He resurrects to new life. And what does he do? He sends you the Holy Spirit. He takes all that was Adam, all the first fruits that was Adam, and then he distributes the opposite of that upon you. He gives you all of his first fruits. It's called the great exchange. Jesus takes all of the world's sin into himself so he can give you his righteousness. Fancy word, imputed righteousness. He gives it to you so that on your best day, he still stands in your place. And on your worst day, when you're acting like a real Adam, we'll say, watched it. I caught myself a little bit. Real Adam, he sees you. The father sees you through the lens of the son, sees you through the first fruits of his son. So what is to follow, right? The father in heaven, Jesus does all this under subjection to the father, the will of the Father to the glory of the Father, and the Father honors it. And the Father looks at him and says, that's my son, first fruits. That means everything that comes after that for the Christian, he only sees Christ in that. He only tastes Christ, only smells Christ, only is engaged by Christ. Come on, somebody. On our worst day, dude, that's the truth of the gospel. And then there is a day, oh, a glorious day, church family, where we get to resurrect to new life. And everything that we fear and everything that makes us feel uncertain and everything that is at a loss in this moment will simply become untrue. The only reason that that is possible is because the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus, when you think about, throw those up, um, relationships up for me, right? When you think about humanity versus humanity, Jesus willingly steps into broken relationships. Why? So he can give you perfect relationships. Jesus willingly uh, steps into the brokenness of the way we view ourselves as he's standing in the garden, experiencing anxiety, sweating drops of blood for us. He willingly steps into the anxious matters of the gospel. Humanity versus God, the Father does what? Turns his face away. Jesus literally steps into broken relationship with his dad so that we could be redeemed. And then humanity versus creation says the world grew dark and there was an earthquake, earthquake at the loss of his, at her creator. Jesus willingly, listen, steps into and experiences everything that we find fearful and foul about this world so that he can give us a day of perfect restoration and perfect glory. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Let's stand up and take some communion. Let's go. I got me charismatic up here. Come on. Let's go. Yeah. And then as we take, as we settle in here now to communion and offering, if you like to give during this time, we appreciate you giving your first fruits uh, during this time. Hopefully a, a splendid mission will follow. Uh, as we take communion together, though, let me, let me challenge you a little bit here and uh, echo some of the words that David uh, brought to you. <clears throat> a communion is a first fruits for us. As a family, okay, if you, maybe you've taken communion a hundred times and you've heard me call you to repentance and call you to confession, but you don't really understand like this aspect of it. Communion is a first fruits. And what I mean by that is communion is a foreshadowing of what's to follow. And so as you come and take communion here in this house, you just see a piece of bread represents Christ's body uh, broken for you in your place as your substitute. You see the cup, uh, which represents Christ's blood spilled in your place as your substitute. You don't have to be a member here to take communion. You do have to submit to the gospel of Jesus Christ for sure. In here, it's just a simple piece of bread and, and a cup. Uh, but what that sim the simplicity of communion reveals is something called a messianic banquet. This is the first fruits of what's to come. 
And the Messianic banquet, the book tells us, in light of that victory that we talked about earlier, that there's this beautiful day coming, man, where the Lord is going to meet us with the best of meats and the finest of wines, and we get to sit at the king's table, and we get to dine. And we get to dine with him in full glory, fully restored bodies, restored minds, restored spirits, in glory with him, whatever this looks like forevermore. (laughs) And so while it is very simple in here, it is the first fruits of something very, very beautiful that is to come. Uh, the way you get to experience that now, though, is through confession and repentance. And so if you want to experience the effects of the resurrection in a hopeful way, you've got to confess the areas of your life, as your pastor led you through earlier, that you still treat as if, if, treat as if Jesus is still dead. There are areas of your life where you're kind of walking around looking like a mummy. You've got some death garb wrapped around you proclaiming a resurrected Jesus, but you stink to high heaven like sin. And so there is some areas in your life where you don't actually believe that the resurrection is sufficient. I'd encourage you now to do some business with the Holy Spirit and say, God, what areas of my life do I treat as if your resurrection power is insufficient? Where am I not believing the gospel? Could you reveal to me some unbelief? And I would simply just start by confessing that. That's confession. And then repentance comes where you say, God, now help me to see that you're actually better than this thing, that you are the better father, that you are the better brother, you're the better son, you're the better counselor, you're the better lover, you're the better fill in the blank, better friend, whatever it may be. That's repentance. And so we turn from the sin, confess it, turn from it in repentance, and then we look to Christ. And then we come and taste and see that he's good. And communion reminds you of the redemptive, restorative power of Jesus Christ over your life. Uh, if you're not yet a believer, I want to give you the option here. This offers on the table for you uh, because you are, in fact, born into Adam. And the only difference between you and those of us who profess Christ is that we believe that Jesus took the death that you will, in fact, receive. And so those four relationships that are broken, what's in store for the non-believer there is those four relationships broken forever. And you can feel the effects of that brokenness here for sure, even as a Christian. But you can solidify your place in the kingdom knowing those relationships will be forever restored once you profess faith in Jesus. And so if you have been looking at Jesus through a lens of some hurt or some pain or some suffering, I want to also invite you then to respond to the true resurrected Jesus, not the one that your story keeps telling you about, but the one that the story tells us about. And he is good and right, man. He'll redeem you and restore you right where you are. You don't clean yourself up. He cleans you up. And sometimes you still look like a mess. Amen. Amen and amen. Let me read you out of 1 Corinthians. Thanks for the opportunity to get to preach to you today. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, oh, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So for those of you who are in Christ, uh, come and taste of these first fruits, man. May they lead you into glory.